Morning, friends and countrymen. It is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Uh, it's laundry day, which means I'm not. Oh, wait. Did the live stream cut out already? It might have. Let's see. No, we're still going. Okay. Still in Thailand. So I don't know. Uh, I mean, the internet has been kind of on and off, but uh, still living on the beach. It's laundry day. I'm uh, actually wearing ballerina tights right now, but you wouldn't know that. Um, you're probably also not wearing pants if you're at home living, uh, listening to this, because that is the state of the world today. Um, and it's been interesting, actually, because I live a pretty introverted lifestyle. And in terms of the activities I've been doing in quarantine, it hasn't been that different. I, I write in the morning, I do whatever my calls, I work out, I hang out. That's kind of what I do normally. In fact, when I'm home in Chiang Mai, Sometimes I go days without leaving my property. It's as much uh, space as I typically need as someone who does most of his activities at home. Even my socializing, I try to bring people to me rather than go out. But it ha I, ha I mean, as many people I've noticed, uh, just like this uh, discomfort with like having to not go places just as the option. And certainly I think if someone is a little more extroverted, it's even more challenging because they're used to having a lot of novelty. But what I think has been interesting has been the perception of time in this time because um, it actually reminds me of the movie Room, which was I think it won the Oscar in 2016. It's about uh, the woman who is abducted and she has a baby in captivity and then her son uh, grows up only knowing like a 10 by 10 room, like that's the universe to him. So when he finally escapes uh, and he sees the world and how much space there actually is in the world, he realizes that there's less time in the world because you're trying to get from space to space. Anyways, made me think because even though, I mean, I'm in a relatively large area right now, I can walk around, there's the beach right there. So I'm not really quarantine quarantined. I have noticed it feels like I have way more time just because I'm not physically moving through space as much. So it's been interesting uh, confrontation of boredom, confrontation of uh, like, it's especially when we're bored, there's a temptation to scroll the social media more, fill our time with nonsense more. But I think it's a great opportunity to contemplate. And if you're in the Facebook group, I put out a little poll on what um, what's a what's a resonant term for for guys who want to contemplate. And everyone chose the word contemplation over introspection and some other options. So I'm actually coming out with something soon to give people uh, to give men specifically a reminder of the joys of contemplation and contemplating life. Anyway, so if you are listening to this right now and you do feel challenged by boredom or attention or anything like that. I mean, hopefully this is not boring to you, but wherever you are, whatever time it is, uh, most people listen to this in the future. So uh, take a deep breath, settle into your body. Remember all those grounding skills, which you may have learned from various things, uh, perhaps stuff that I've put out. And uh, just remember that whatever you choose to pay attention to, uh, you will get more of that thing. You'll get the more value of that action or activity or person if you actually just pay full attention. I think um, that's, I mean, a particular challenge right now because we have extra, extra time or, or the perception of time is greater because we have less physical space to roam around in. Anyway, um, so today's topic is on the father nature and the birth of the hero. A couple of weeks ago, we did the one on slaying Medusa, overcoming the mother complex, how that relates to the earlier parts of, of uh, human development. I was speaking specifically on the masculine hero's journey um, the mother complex is right in the beginning of Joseph Campbell's monomyth in, in, in the sense of like, in order to separate from your literal mother or the domain of your maternal influence, it's, 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 uh, it directly correlates to the sociological or sorry, anthropological move of human beings away from being just another animal who just goes into the flow of nature. Um, the symbol for that is the Ouroboros, the snake eating its tail. Anyway, that's all in last episode. And I was thinking about for, um, actually pushing this off another week because I'm still reading the very dense Eric Neumann book on the origins of consciousness. There's a little more for me to read on his takes on the birth of the hero, but um, I decided to just do it today anyway, because last week um, I had the pleasure of, in of uh, interviewing one of my heroes. Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman um, was on the podcast. Uh, his episode's coming out in a couple of days. I think on Thursday is episode 81 of the interviews on the Romano podcast, but um was really significant to me other than just being a really interesting interview and i highly recommend it for anybody uh he speaks about the psychology of killing and the psychology of combat and um the protector archetype within being a man um, but it was significant to me because his book on killing which is on the psychology of killing 
Um, I read when I was an officer candidate in the Marine Corps in 2009. So um, this all ties into the today's topic. So I'm going to tell this briefly. Uh, growing up, I had the insecurities around masculinity that many people do. I think maybe I had it worse than most boys uh, for various reasons related to my father ruin, which I'll get into. And um, of course, uh, the idea of joining the Marines specifically, I was like, if there's any place where I can become a man and get over my wimpy tendencies or my my fears and whatever, it's, it's in the Marine Corps. So I pursued uh, this career in the Marine Corps through college. I spent two summers in Quantico earning my commission. In 2009, I earned my lieutenant commission. So I just had another year to go um, where I had to just finish uh I graduated in 2010 from university. I had to get my degree and then I could be a lieutenant in the Marines. And that was my plan. Like that year, I was super gung-ho. I woke up at dawn every day. Um, every night I was reading all the books on the Commandant's reading list, like all the recommended reading from Marine officers. And one of those books was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman's book on killing. And it was one of the major factors that made me decide not to join the Marines. Because after reading his book and seeing the psychological toll that modern military training takes on men. I was like, you know what? My primary driver for the Marine Corps is uh, seeing adventures, seeing what I've made of, the character development. If I come back with like my head kind of messed up, it kind of defeats the, my purpose. And um, aside from that, I thought if, if my purposes are all like kind of self-focused, maybe I shouldn't be leading Marines in combat. That's probably not the best reason. Anyway, what was particularly meaningful, other than just uh, being able to interview this uh, writer, uh, veteran who has written books that have influenced my life is that he gave me a lot of validation, which I mean, on terms of love languages, I'm not high on the words of affirmation thing. I don't really need compliments from people. They don't do a lot for me, but there's something particularly meaningful about him giving me like a lot of praise on my podcast. I guess he had gone through all of my stuff online and he had, um, I, I think he even like went through my arousal control course, uh, which I was really surprised because he's a very Christian uh, conservative guy. Um, but he said a lot of like positive things about me. And I realized like something in me, like kind of healed in that, like he as a war hero is kind of a, or a veteran, I should say is kind of, um, and a writer kind of like a lot of the things that I felt like I was missing from my male role model. I'll speak about my, my actual relationship with my father in a second, but basically he was short in those areas and my insecurities in my masculinity kind of drew from, uh, my, my father's character flaws and my dad, great guy, had a lot of virtues. This is like, these are the areas that he was weak in confidence, toughness, grit, creativity, things like that. And those are the things I was insecure about growing up. So to have this guy who kind of would fill in for the secondary father, which we'll define in a second to have him validate me, I was like, wow, this is kind of like a completion of a cycle for myself in terms of my own father wounding. Got to talk about this on Monday. So here we are. Um, okay. So just like we did with the mother complex, we're going to speak about this topic on three layers. The first layer, the one that should be most meaningful to you, is how this relates to your own development of consciousness. Um, in Jungian terms, it's like the development of personality. I think personality means something a little bit different in the way we use it commonly now. Um, but it's in the development of your individuation, uh, going from your boyhood self through your ego, son of swords, into the man, your, your exalted self or whatever it is, your individuated self-actualized self. This is an important phase. And um, even though I think a uh, sign of the times right now is men being stuck in their mother complexes, the father complex is just as meaningful. And in, throughout history has been uh, a sticking point, I'd say, for many men in like achieving their own greatness or expressing their own kingliness or their own masculine archetype. So that's the first layer, the individual here, how it uh, fits in the individual hero's journey. The second layer is uh, kind of a more academic layer, but I think is interesting is the how all of this ties to the anthropological development of, of humankind. Um, that's Eric Neumann's thesis, as you remember from last episode. Um, he basically maps the de development of an individual person's consciousness to the development of consciousness within human beings. So like toddler self kind of matches with... Uh, Neolithic or Neolithic ancestors. Your adolescent self is kind of like an early Homo sapiens. Your ex, your individuated self is uh, correlates with Homo sapiens sapiens as we are today. And then finally, just to ground us in a few stories, I'm going to share about my own experiences with my relationship to my father archetype and my literal father. Okay, so um, just to give us context within the hero's journey, 
again, the mother stuff, if you remember, if you are somewhat aware with Joseph Campbell's monomyth, uh, the hero's journey is a structure that you see in a lot of myth mythologies across cultures and in modern day movies, Marvel movies always follow exactly this hero journey story structure. Why? Because it, it mirrors, it demonstrates or symbolizes um, the experience of our own individuation. So there's different stages within the hero's journey. It's uh, seen in Star Wars and Marvel movies in Lord of the Rings, many, many uh, mythologies and stuff. Um, the hero initially is in the status quo, uh, in the top of the circle. He's in the realm of regular people doing regular things. He's Frodo in the Shire. He's Luke Skywalker on Tatooine. Life is boring as usual, but he has this urge inside of him. Something happens, gives him the call to adventure, and then he is he has the opportunity to cross the threshold. In most of uh, in most movies, at first he refuses the call for various reasons. This is because most of us, when confronted with an opportunity for growth, initially will resist it because growth is uncomfortable. It's easier to stay in our status quo. Um, but at some point, something happens. Uh, you know, Spider Man's uncle dies, uh, Luke Skywalker's uh, family is slaughtered, or whatever, and he has to cross the threshold out of the status quo into the realm of the unknown, which represents our movement from a uh, superficial boring life where our ego can just remain as a static whatever into our own unconscious and then return as a hero. Uh, so the mother complex is the, it represents the, the crossing of the threshold where we detach from uh, the safety of our maternal nest and become an individual uh, entity. So as we spoke about last, last time, um, guys who are stuck in mother complexes are still, they might like physically move away from home or do all these things, but they're still attached. Their identity is still attached to their mother. They still have a metaphoric umbilical cord. Sli cutting that, the slaying the Medusa myth and many other um, mythologies where uh, a hero defeats like an evil older uh, female figure like Medusa represents this separation. The next stage uh, and, uh, is slaying the father. So there's a lot of mythologies like Oedipus, which we talked about last episode, where the hero kills a father figure or some sort of paternal figure. And this represents a something a little bit different because um, the moving away from the, the mother and slaying the mother is uh, represents uh, separating from nature, so separating from our animal instincts. Uh, this is also shown in the garden in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve leave, leave uh, their father's kingdom. I mean, it, it gets twisted when you talk about uh, patriarchal religions, but that is leaving nature. They're leaving the abundance of nature and moving out into the world on their own. That's the birth of human consciousness. Slaying the father, on the other hand, is separating, is the hero separating from culture. Um, so it's the hero separating from, instead of the natural norms of being an animal, it's separating from the human norms of whatever your culture is. And this is an important step in individuation because, as you know, as you can probably it's, it's obvious if you are stuck on other people's culture and the representation here is if you're constantly fo following your primary father, or your literal father figures, everything, um, you're not you're not actually taking your own path. So this is this is shown in the prodigal son um, parable in the Bible as well, where the, the son leaves his father's home, chooses to come back. but he, he chooses to come back on his own volition as opposed to just going along with his father's life because his father said so. Um, so. This was done, I was switching to the anthropological side of things, um, in, in pre-agricultural societies or many indigenous societies, this has been seen in how um, children very often, in, in many of these societies, many of these societies were, uh, they had like, um, what's the word? It was, it was just, uh, spoke about in Sex at Dawn, Chris, uh, Christopher Ryan's book about how um, most of the time, people didn't even know who their fathers were because they didn't really have a sense of monogamy or of, uh, sexual exclusivity. So very often, uh, people knew who their mother were, who their mother was, because they came out of their mother's body. Um, but uh, they didn't always know who their father was because there wasn't necessarily um, ownership of of women or sexuality. This was pre-patriarchy, pre-agriculture. Many of these societies, people just slept with each other. And a lot of these societies, they've uh, noted that they didn't even realize there's a connection between sex and uh, children because everyone was kind of just having sex and, and children happen when they happened. Um, and this is also why in Judaism, uh, you're considered Jewish if your mother's Jewish because uh, pre-agriculture again, without um, enforced monogamy and the norm of monogamy, you didn't always know who your father was. So you always knew who your mother was because you literally came out of her body. This is also why bonobo uh, monkeys, uh, not chimpanzees, the bonobos are 
similar to us, but they, uh, unlike chimpanzees, who have a lot of like, actually a lot of like the patriarchal aggressive behavior that humans um, exhibit. Bonobo, uh, bonobos have a lot of the matriarchal tendencies that humans have in terms of egalitarianism and free love and, or like the impulse towards sexuality. Anyway, uh, so in, in pre-agricultural indigenous societies, um, the, the common practice was to create a rite of passage. So a child lived in the land of women, you know, he lived within with the other children, uh, had his mother, her mother and all the other mothers around. It's the land of women where they're safe. And this represents again, like the womb, uh, they're within that around the time of puberty, the child, the boy specifically was abducted by the, the men of the tribe, taken away from his mother and put through a rite of passage, which was typically a physically and spiritually challenging events. Um, there's all sorts of uh, examples of this, something where they're battling the elements or physically in, in some sort of simulated combat or, or literal combat that wouldn't kill him, but it gave him the opportunity to dig deep and see what he was made of because his mother was no longer there to protect him. And the, the whole idea behind these rites of passage is that it forced, forced the boy to really uh, learn how to self-soothe uh, or like this uh, self-soothe is um robert glover's uh term he wrote uh, no mr nice guy uh it's uh and actually one of his theses is that um guys who are stuck in nice guy syndrome uh become extra dependent on women or they maternalize the women in their lives because they've never learned how to soothe themselves if uh, I referenced this uh, in the last episode of the mother complex, one of the roots of misogyny and fear of women and therefore hate of women is Yoda said in episode one, uh, fear turns to anger, anger turns to hate, hate turns to suffering. Part of the root of misogyny is that uh, many men and collectively masculine consciousness uh, has been uncomfortable with their dependency on the feminine for nurturing and then later for sex and affection and all the things that men can't give each other. Like there's certain things that particularly, I guess, a straight man or any man can only really get from the feminine side of the psyche or, or women. So the rite of passage again, because the mother wasn't there to nurture him or soothe him, he has to learn to access his own inner feminine, his own ability to soothe himself and become a sovereign individual. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, that's the that's the purpose of the rite of passage. In modern day, we don't have those um, institutionalized rites of passages, but a lot of people have those uh, that that drive for it anyway, or that uh, unconscious impulse for that. Um, one aspect of the rite of passage of going going from the mother's world into the the land of men is male bonding, and you can see how in things like uh, male gangs, in the military, in fraternities, there's always a hazing process. If you ask someone, I mean, I've, uh, I've I was on the on, on the rugby team in college. We had a hazing process. I've been in fraternities. We had some sort something like that. Uh, basic training in the military. Obviously, we don't call it hazing, but it is it is hazing. You're putting a lot of stress on these recruits so that by the end of basic training, they are badasses or they're tough. But they're also bonded to the group. And you can see this is if you ask someone, if you ask a drill instructor, if you ask a fraternity brother, like why are you doing these things. Um, he might say something like it's for bonding it's to show you what you're made of. All of that stuff is true. It's also just like the unconscious drive to like claim your own sovereign masculinity. And even, even as simple as, uh, why people, uh, why typically the, the average guy would get wasted, uh, during his bachelor party, um, or, or get wasted every weekend. It's like this unconscious drive for a, uh, a, a humbling or humiliating experience that can really force you to get to know with get to know what's inside of you instead of just your surface level persona. Um, yeah, so that's the that's uh, the, so with the slaying of the father, we'll get to slaying of father in a second. I'm, uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I've already done that. Um, so in mythologies, one of the uh, one of the types of stories that uh, demonstrates the birth of the hero or this freeing of the anima is the whole idea of the knight slaying the dragon to save the princess. Uh, you can see this in, in medieval mythologies. I think it's interesting that uh, it's so common specifically in medieval mythologies, maybe because the collective consciousness of the world in the Middle, age, middle Ages was kind of stuck in this, uh, in this aspect um, or the stage of the hero's journey, perhaps. Um, but in the, in the typical uh, hero uh, slays the dragon, saves the princess, the dragon represents uh, a different form of the Uruburos. So if you remember from last, uh, last episode again, the Uruburos is the snake eating its tail. Um, 
and that represents nature. Like uh, nature is constantly eating itself. Things are born and things die, and it's a seamless, uh, seamless experience. But I just realized that since I, I am literally outside right now in nature, the video feed is flashing in weird ways. But anyway, most people listen to the audio, uh, says, so says the internet stats. So I'm not going to worry about that too much. Okay. So the dragon um, represents a different form of the Ouroboros. So the Ouroboros is a snake. A dragon is kind of a snake on steroids. Uh, if you think of how people came up with this, uh, this, um, the dragon is also interesting because uh, it's one of these symbols that uh, has been across cultures. It's like the Chinese came up with the dragon, but also medieval uh, Europe also came up with their own versions of the dragon. Uh, there's the, I think it's called the Fafnir in North mythology, Norse mythology, uh, different parts of Europe have different forms of dragons. Asia had their own dragons. Like, what is the deal with the dragon? Like, they weren't communicating with each other. I guess it's possible that some travelers shared a myth about dragons and they copied it or, or, or changed it. They turned it into a meme. But I think the dragon is one of these symbols that came from deep in the collective unconscious because it represents this, uh, this kind of devilish part of nature. So uh, Neumann and Jung uh, share, uh, they, they get really hung up on the differences between introverts and extroverts. Uh, for them, I mean, they coined the term back in the early 1900s, so they could use it however they wanted. Um, but they would say that introverts, uh, for for them, the the dragon slaying mythology directly represents their own um, their own demons. Like an introvert listens to the story. Uh, okay, we just uh, had a comment. Someone said the dragon represents what? Uh, to an introvert, the dragon well, the dragon represents one's demons, and it's a movement from the mother complex uh, snake, the Uruburos into like, you know, once the, once the hero overcomes his mother complex, now he's an individual entity and he's re it's like, he's, uh, he's seeing the, the boss again on the, if you think of it as a video game, it's like the boss has returned and now he's instead of uh, a Bulbasaur, he's a, a, he's a Venusaur to use Pokemon terms. I hope you, you got that reference. Um, so the dragon uh, and, and uh, Jung was saying that uh, an introvert sees the dragon or sees a, a story and immediately relates it to his own, uh, internal archetypes. Introverts tend to just, their mind just tends to go that way. They watch a story immediately, even unconsciously, oh, this, this, is, this is my own demons. Um, an extrovert tends to take the idea of the archetypes and project it onto the world. Uh, they also use the term centrovert. I'm going to get to that later. Um, so the princess, uh, so going back to the whole point of the rites of passage, the princess in the story represents the one's own anima. And uh, Jung and Neumann use this term crystallization of the anima because uh, it's like the creation of your feminine aspect of psyche as its own entity, as opposed to something attached to uh, the mother uh, prior to well, when in the mother complex, prior to the creation of the hero crossing the threshold, a young boy's feminine is his mother. Like he doesn't consider that he has his own feminine side the feminine in his his entire life experience is coming from the literal woman who's giving him nurturing, who's maybe feeding him from her breast, whatever. Um, the dragon slaying story represents slaying your own demons, slaying your own um, uh, the things that that resist you to allow you to have uh, access to your own feminine, which gives you your own ability to feel your own emotions, to connect with people intimately not in a maternal sense, but again, as a peer to the feminine, um, and also uh, access your own creativity. This is the seat of all of that. Uh, so this is where, in the dragon slaying myth, a man or a boy uh, stop, removes his dependence on his mother, or really dependence on any woman to give him a certain thing. And you can see this in uh, many women today complain about dating man children, or the term fuckboy gets used. These are men who um have don't have access to their own anima so they project maternal characteristics onto the women that they're intimate with and it ends up being an unpleasant situation for the woman they're dating because they don't get to be a lover when they're being a mother at the same time so uh okay so slaying the mother as we mentioned represents uh overcoming nature um leaving the garden of eden overcoming the animal impulses that don't serve us Overcoming our genes, to put it into to, um, scientific terms, where slaying the father uh, represents overcoming stagnant elements of culture, overcoming our memes. So I'm going to take a quick aside to explain genes and memes. Take a sip of water first. 
some people think this is unnecessarily nerdy, but this is my podcast. So we're going to talk about it. So genes, most of us know what genes are. They're packets of information within our chromosome that make up our body. But I think it's really great the way Richard Dawkins explains how to visualize it. If you think of, if you think of your chromosome as a, as a binder full of pages and each page is random, is information about some, some part of your body. What a gene is, is a, a sequence of pages that for whatever reason has found its way to replicate itself in that sequence in, in a child. So, uh, and you would only call a gene is not a standard unit. A gene can be 20 pages. A gene can be two pages. It could be 200 pages. Um, a gene is just some unit that has repeated itself in that exact sequence. And, um, this is because it's some, somehow found a way to persist either by sneaking its way into the chromosome, like a recessive gene or, or actually contributing to the health and well-being and survival of the offspring, which is why it passes on. If there's a gene or a sequence of pages that, um, makes an individual kill himself before he has children, that gene will not pass on. And we wouldn't even call it a gene because it, it's not a gene unless it actually repeats over and over again. Uh, and, and you can see how when it comes to recessive genes or anything that, that and not even recessive genes, anything that leads to our behavior, a lot of our instinctive behavior doesn't actually serve us as a conscious individual. So a lot of the times, like this whole idea of battling nature, overcoming nature is overcoming our genetic programming. Uh, one obvious example would be we have most of us, almost all of us have this predisposition to enjoy sugar. Why? Because uh, that's there's a gene uh, that leads to the enjoyment of sugar. Um, why? Because in nature, anytime you come across blueberries, you should probably eat them. But they weren't that common. Nowadays, we have processed sugars. So this impulse, this instinct to eat sugar obviously is not good for us because the world has changed. There are other there's other uh, instincts like that. Um, one of the, I guess I'll, I'll pick another, uh, an extreme one in the other direction. Uh, there's an experience, controversial extreme experience uh, that has been documented on how um, rape victims very often will have an orgasm in the terror of being raped. It seems very crazy. It seems very counterintuitive. Why would, a, uh, I'll say, a woman experience this moment of pleasure in this moment of terror? It, it, I think this specifically has been documented to cause a lot of uh, PTSD experiences in in uh, sexual abuse survivors because they don't understand why their body would have this pleasurable experience in the midst of this very terrible experience. And that's simply because uh, there is, uh, our, our genes don't really care about our mental well-being. Our genes just program us to do things that will allow us to um, uh, procreate and experience their genes. And unfortunately in the animal kingdom, rape is one of these strategies. I'm just thinking, um, I used to have betta fish when I was um, in college and betta fish are the, the fighting fish. And I really loved my betta fish, betta fish, like they had their predator fish. So their eyes are in the front of their head. They, they have like, they have personalities, but you can't put them in the same bowl as another betta fish because they end up killing each other. I had this male betta fish. I was really into this. Uh, I was, I mean, as, as much as uh, a young man can be bonded to his fish, I really liked my fish. He had a personality. It was like, it was a beautiful fish anyway. And I'm sounding weird talking about my fish, but um, he started doing the betta fish mating ritual, which is building a bubble nest. And I'm like, oh, my my beloved little fish, his name was Tornado, because um, I bought him on um, I bought him on Halloween while I was dressed as Zorro. And I believe that uh, that's the name of Zorro's horse. Anyway, that's why I bought him. I wanted to get him a female fish so that he can procreate because that's he was doing the mating ritual. He was building a nest to put eggs in. I didn't realize how violent the betta fish uh, procreation or mating ritual was basically, uh, the male chases the female around kind of beats her up and then squeezes the eggs out of her. Sometimes she dies from that. Then he scoops up the eggs, put them, puts them in the nest and fertilizes them. I didn't realize it was so violent. I would, I would not have put a betta fish uh, through this. I just thought it was nature happening. So basically my female betta fish who I bought, uh, got got beaten up really terribly and she actually jumped out of the tank and it wasn't it was like in a full aquarium so she had to jump out of the hole and a couple times like I saw her on the floor still breathing because betta fish can can breathe air anyway uh, I thought this was I mean I felt so bad I was like okay you know what uh, procreation is not worth this terror so I put her in a bowl and I put um I put her bowl away from my fish I put it I was in college so I put it um put the bowl in my roommate's um uh, bedroom and he had his own betta fish, his own male betta fish in a, in another bowl. And, uh, my female betta fish was so like aggro from being beaten up by my fish that she jumped out of her bowl into, into my roommate's fish's bowl and killed the fish. 
that's nature. Nature is metal. This is how it goes. Um, so anyway, there's all to say that our genetic instincts are not always uh, are not always in favor of our well-being. In fact, many of the behaviors that we dislike about ourselves or that are uh, unconducive to well-being are coming from a genetic programming to try to, to get us to survive and replicate. Things like anger and violence are part of that. Also, the topic of uh, of the next podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Grossman, I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, lots of interesting insights on violence. Anyway, uh, slaying of the father, though, is overcoming memes. So this is the next thing I had to define because with internet memes, most people don't know what the word meme is. Most people think a meme is just a joke on the internet. That's not the case. A meme is a unit of culture. If a gene is a unit of nature, a unit of like what makes up your body, uh, a meme is a unit of culture. It's a unit of how we view reality or how we, yeah, how we view society and culture. So uh, Richard Dawkins also actually coined the term meme, not in terms of internet jokes. But the reason why we call it uh, a meme is anything that repeats itself as any idea that repeats itself with slight modification over time, just like a gene is something that repeats itself in the chromosomes of parent to offspring. Um, we call them internet memes because usually it's a joke or it's like a photo with a caption and it gets shared over and over again. And oftentimes it'll get slightly modified. So like if you think of like the philosopher raptor or the success kid, like you'll see or like the Willy Wonka thing, you all know what memes are. Uh, you'll see the same images with slightly different tweaks. And it, it's like what makes them particularly funny is that we see the, we see the same recognizable image that made us laugh within a slightly new caption. And it's interesting. But memes are any idea that get passed around over and over again. Um, so a lot of the memes that we get as children or as society members come from um, come from the paternal side or masculine side of our environment. So it might be your literal father if you had a traditional household with traditional gender roles. Your father might have called all the shots. Chances are, if you're a younger person, uh, you know, you grew up in a feminist influence world, that might have not been the case. Maybe your mother wore the pants, but it doesn't matter. The masculine side of the psyche, the testosterone-driven behaviors, typically are what uh, create the norms of society, especially in modern times where uh, even with feminism, we still run on very patriarchal norms and assumptions. And actually, feminism itself runs on patriarchal norms and assumptions, but uh, that's a, a long tangent that I won't get into today. Um, so uh, this, so in the mythologies where they demonstrate the father wounding, very often they'll have experiences where the hero uh, is expected to follow in his father's footsteps, but he wants to do something else. Like he, he doesn't want to be king. He wants to be an artist. Or actually in the origin story of Buddhism, um, Siddhartha Gautama, who is the person who became the, the Buddha that Buddha, Buddhism is, is based on, um, he was born as a prince. He was supposed to become king. He was supposed to be separate from the poor and everything, but he didn't want to do that. He went out and experienced the poor. He experienced life. And he was like, I don't want to follow my father's footsteps of being a king or a tyrant. I want to be with the people. So this was an experience of him saying no to his primary father. Whether it is your literal father that you're uh, following by default or not, or, or just the the masculine norm set by your society, if you, it's, it's not about whether you do what your father, your dad says or not. It's about whether or not you actively choose to do those things rather than just doing it because your paternal influence said to or, or, what, or, or whatnot. Um, I'm going to read this quote by, uh, by Neumann. Um, the exception, so he's talking about how the norm for most individuals uh, throughout post-agricultural history, most, most men just follow their father's footsteps uh, throughout most of time if like your father was a shoemaker you became a shoemaker no questions about it very little societal mobility very little choice and he was saying this was the norm this has been the norm throughout uh post-agricultural society the exception to the the sameness between fathers and sons is the creative individual the hero the hero has to awaken sleeping images of the future which can and must come from the night in order to give the world a new and better face this necessarily makes him a breakable law so a lot of these um Mythologies involve someone challenging the old king or the old law or the norms of the society. And uh, in the quote, he says, uh, the sleeping images of the future which come from the night, that means the unconscious. The, the hero is the one who breaks away from what everyone else is doing, breaks away from his social circle, breaks away from his friend group, you know, quits the job that everyone expected him to do, doesn't follow what his, his parents expect him to do. And he goes into his own, he goes into the, the unconscious 
his own unconscious, but also the collective unconscious, which are not that separate, um, finds the, the nuggets of truth that live deep in the collective unconscious and then brings them back. And that might be doing what his father did, but by choice, not by default. And I see a lot in guys who, because um, when we talk about the father wound, uh, a lot of guys um, who have really great dads, like their dad was a really great role model. Um, he was there, he was attentive. It's a kind of a weird thing where I've seen a lot of guys who have like these heroic fathers, like they have like maybe a famous father or something like that. And they, they might be in their 30s, 40s, and they still are like a boy because they've never left their own father's shadow. They've throughout the entire adult life. I know a lot of guys like this. They've always just did whatever their dad told them to. And it's not that that's bad. In fact, in those situations, they did it because their dad was such a heroic, brilliant guy. Those men never develop their own security and they never develop their own decisiveness. And, and very rarely will you see these guys be effective fathers, if not if fathers at all. In fact, a lot of the guys I speak to who have father complexes um, can't even imagine having children. It doesn't matter whether you want to have kids or not, but they can't even imagine having children because they themselves still see them as a son to their father rather than their own sovereign father. Um, and I uh, just want to make sure I didn't miss anything on that. So the the what Neumann defines as a hero is a creative individual who fights the old guard. And I think this is interesting um, why a lot of, uh, a lot of stories, myths, uh, have a hero that is an orphan. Like um, Harry Potter is a, is a hero orphan. Uh, Lyra Silvertongue from the the Golden, what's it? The uh, His Dark Materials uh, children's series, uh, kind of an orphan. She actually literally fights her parents in the book. But I, I think the the orphan symbology, and then you know, see this in um, even how Jesus was born without a father. There, that kind of thing. Uh, actually, I'll get into the Jesus myth in a second. That's a slightly different. The reason why there's so many orphan protagonists is that this represents a hero that doesn't have a maternal figure, a paternal figure to rely on. He has, the hero has to go out and find his secondary father, which we'll get into now. So the whole father wound, the father wound is simply the recognition of the shortcomings of your own paternal influence. So it could be an extreme example is the deadbeat dad who treated you like crap or, or beat you or walked out on your family. That obviously creates certain wounding and insecurity in a man, in a, a boy who had to become man of the house too young or something like that. Or on the other end, it could be, you know, um, uh, uh, your, it's like, <clears throat> excuse me, your paternal uh, role model might've been um, someone who just like had certain character flaws. I think I got stuck up there because I was thinking about how I would speak about my own dad. Like I, I will say like my dad was a really great guy. Um, he in, in imparted uh, many great masculine virtues or just many virtues into me. Like when I was, like my dad was a physicist and he's like very in his head, uh, but also very intellectual and book smart, as you would guess from a physicist. So when I was a kid, like by the time I was seven, I could explain physics better than most of my teachers just because that's what my dad always talked to me about. But I wasn't, you know, and I appreciate that now as a grown man, but when I was a kid, I wasn't really, you know, being good at physics when you're in elementary school doesn't really get you any cool points. The things I was insecure about were the things that my actual dad is uh, flawed in, which is confidence, the ability to socialize, leadership, uh, being, you know, being able to uh, being able to be tough. And I, you know, I remember like, when I think about the father wound in myself, I can think of like specific instances when I was a young kid and I was I would see my dad back down to someone. I mean, there's one, I don't, I don't, it, it makes me emotional still, but like, I remember like, uh, I was like, I had, my dad had just picked me up from little league practice and we got into a minor car accident with some uh, car, but the other, it was a hundred percent the other car's fault. The other car like just wasn't looking and just bumped into our car and my dad and the guy got out and they exchanged words. And I don't remember exactly what was said, but even though it was a hundred percent the other guy's fault, Somehow my dad ended up apologizing and I could see that he was afraid or he, I could see that he was intimidated and like, you know, not that they were going to get into a fist fight over this like minor fender bender, but I remember losing respect for him at that time. And, and, you know, now, I mean, as I grow older, I can, I can forgive him for that and realize no one is perfect. And he, he was a really great father in many ways, but that kind of thing stuck with me as an insecurity throughout my entire adolescence and, and, young adulthood because I was afraid of people. I was afraid of confrontation. I was very timid around loud social people uh, in particular. And I, and I, throughout my adolescence, I kind of blamed my father for giving me this lack of confidence. And that, that honestly caused a lot of uh, headbutting and uh, painful 
exchanges between my father and I. And to be fair, like he and I don't even have a great uh, relationship to this day because of some things I've done my best to forgive him. But I think, you know, it takes two to tango, of course. Um, so the way that one overcomes the father wound uh, as, as recognized by Joseph Campbell, uh, this term is his, the secondary father. This is important because even if you had a perfect heroic dad or you had a deadbeat dad or you had a well-meaning dad who just had his own shortcomings, you don't access your own masculinity, your own authentic expression of masculinity until you seek out the traits that you yourself want to embody. And it might be that your dad is awesome and uh, you, you choose to follow his footsteps. Or it might be, in my case, I've always been drawn to guys who are kind of opposite my dad, uh, guys who were like really loud, obnoxious uh, I grew up in um, I grew up in a part of Brooklyn where there were a lot of mobsters, and I was really drawn to not to say that I, I mean I could tell who who was a mobster or not, but I was really drawn to like the Italian goomba types who were you know very blue collar and very loud and very confident. I was always seeking those kinds of role models. I wanted to hang out with those kinds of guys. I would and, and much to the anger of my father, who was a very conservative intellectual guy, uh, he thought it was very uncouth of me to. He thought these guys were like you know trashy dudes. I think he actually used the word trashy a lot, but that's what I was like unconsciously seeking as a secondary father, because I wanted to know these guys who were tough and badasses and had these traits that I felt myself and my father were both lacking in. Um, and this is important because, and you see this in a lot of mythologies, and this is the meeting of the mentor in the hero's journey where Luke Skywalker seeks out Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan is a Jedi. Luke Skywalker wants to be a Jedi. Frodo is uh, gets in touch with Gandalf. Uh, Harry Potter meets his heroes, um, uh, all that stuff. Uh, this is an important step in, in yourself. And so now in, in your real life, you might have access to a mentor. You might, you know, I mean, with popular media, we all listen to things and watch things. And there's certain types of people that we are drawn to. Like I've been watching a lot of, um, although I've been trying to be conscious of my YouTube, uh, YouTube consumption, but I have been watching a lot of uh, this guy, Wes Watson. Uh, he has this channel on YouTube where he basically just gives like he was, he was in prison for 10 years and he gives like this hard, you know, no bullshit advice. And it really, it really gets me motivated. It's kind of like this unconscious drive towards the secondary father figure, the type of, per, the type of man who has the traits that you yourself want to experience uh, and ex, uh, express in yourself. <clears throat> um, this is the whole idea behind uh, apprenticeship. And I'd say a lot of the hazing we see in men's male groups, fraternities, the military gangs, is this attempt to leave the mother, seek out, you know, because whoever's doing the hazing, whether it's a drill instructor or a, a, a high-ranking fraternity brother or something, he probably, I mean, you wouldn't be drawn to that experience unless the, the, the tribal elders had those traits that you yourself want to express. So like in the, in the Mask and Archetype Challenge, this is one of the exercises where we, we uh, identify the types of traits and the types of people that we're unconsciously drawn to because there's probably something underexpressed in you that you want to express. And, you know, this is, this is the, the simple practical uh, action to, to overcome your father wounding. Um, if you, and again, it doesn't matter what your father wounding was, whether it was due to negligence or maybe your father died young. And uh, even though you can't blame him for passing away, it created this wound or insecurity that there wasn't a male presence. You seeking out that male presence is part of you individuating. It doesn't matter what age you are because, again, like I said, there are 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds with father wounding. There's people who go through their entire life never healing their father wounds or their mother wounds. Um, so, again, what the father paternal thing represents is uh, is is the sense of reality, and we can even call it spiritual uh, dependency. This is the uh, quote-unquote higher masculinity as opposed to lower masculinity represented by sexual virility. Because um, <clears throat> the paternal side of your development is what decides your life direction, the maternal side being your connection to feelings. Um, so simply being able to make your own life choices, make life choices in spite of your parents or in spite of your environment, uh, is a major choice. And this is something that comes up a lot when I talk to guys who want to start their own business or travel the world or whatever. The idea of quitting their job or just doing something counterculture is terrifying, not because, I mean, many guys are afraid of like they won't make money and stuff. And that's a rational fear, of course. But a lot of people, if they're honest, the real thing stopping them is they're afraid of what their friends are going to think. Their friends taking the place of the father archetype in the sense that they represent what the norms of reality are. If all of your friends got corporate jobs after college and they're all doing that, 
for you to quit corporate and start your own business is gonna is gonna be met by the crabs in the barrel experience where they're trying to pull you down or they've they've gotten used to relating to you as another one of the drones so for you to try to be your own your own animal it's going to experience challenges and this in itself is your own uh is his own rite of passage in a sense is can you overcome the judgments of the norms of the other people because um there's another i'm just going to say this uh quote to the end but your ability to counter the norms of the environment you're in is you re is is claiming your own father nature and overcoming uh your father wounding which which uh you know uh, you know like where we talked about the mother wounds uh, guys with mother complexes have uh, a difficult time really connecting with women they have a difficult time accessing their emotions they have a difficult time accessing their creativity those are the father wound typically have a difficult time making decisions they have a difficult time um uh, taking responsibility and I, I think related to this and i'll speak for myself is they have challenges around money uh money because uh, as father as the the mother the mother complex represents uh connection to feeling the father uh or intimacy the father nature connects to security. And in modern times, uh, security is very much tied to money at one point. And in some level, unconsciously, uh, the father nature is also uh, connected to violence and the capacity to actually defend yourself. But most of us in the first world, unless unless this virus stuff really uh, creates world anarchy, most of us don't don't have to actually know how to physically defend ourselves. None of us have to carry weapons unless you're in a particular situation or if you're in law enforcement or in the military. Um, for us, uh, for most of us in the first world, money is a representation of security. And you'll see guys who have a, like this unconscious uh, uh, self-sabotaging pattern towards money, like they can't earn money or then they have money, they lose it. Very often this is tied to their uh, their father archetype within them, where it's like they, they don't feel like they can take responsibility for security. So they find a way to defer it. Because if you have enough money to take care of yourself or you have enough money to take care of a family that is very tied to um, the father nature. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting. Um, I had a, I speak about the virility paradox, the book on testosterone quite a bit. I had a podcast with his author, I think it's episode 32. Um, and uh, he said, he, he, and he said, you know, he's a liberal guy. He's very progressive. He just, he, he actually was trying really hard not to make uh, 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 arguments supporting gender roles or anything like that. But he did share statistics that, one of there's the two highest factors that can predict divorce in heterosexual couples is one where the woman makes more money than the man and two where the woman has particularly high testosterone both of these experience or both of these uh situations you can imagine in some way emasculate the man or take him out of his masculine role making him obsolete and very often these marriages become sexless uh, it's very unconscious i mean most women i speak to you know, they want to have their own money, they want to have their own career, they want to be independent. But if they really think about it, they usually want to be with the guy who makes more money. Why? Because that lets him take over the security pole, even if she's also wealthy independently. If he's handling the security pole, she gets to relax into her feminine. Uh, so I'm uh, only have a few minutes left. So I'm gonna I'm gonna bring us home with uh, your ability to be a leader, if only not necessarily leading groups or being in charge or having power over people, but your ability to call your own shots and make your own decisions independent of the group is not only important for your own development as, as a man and your own individuation and well-being. Uh, Neumann and Jung would make this argument that it's also a method of, in quotes, healing the world in the sense that on a practical level, let's say, if you have if you have if you go through life having these father wounds, Anytime you're in a paternal role, whether it's with your own children or followers you have, or uh, if you're manager of a team or something, um, if you if you have your own father wounds, if they go unhealed, you're going to in some way pass that on to them in your behaviors. Uh, and this becomes, you know, this endless cycle of father wounding where a boy is wounded by his father. He has his holes in his, he has insecurities as an old masculinity. He passes those insecurities on to the next generation and so on and so forth. Whereas if you heal that in yourself, uh, you heal the world. And, you know, on a more mystical level, uh, Jung and Neumann would say that uh, in the way that, you know, Neumann's thesis is that by connecting with, um, or that your, your growth of individual consciousness maps a human consciousness, he would argue that your ability to, to become individually insecure and overcome these woundings of the psyche actually heal the world. And we can think of this in, you know, again, the practical level of like your behaviors pass on the pain to other people or not. I mean, pain could stop with you or it could just be another node that endlessly passes on insecurities generation after generation. So the thing to understand is that 
the hero, what defines a hero in the Jungian sense is that a hero is a creative, creative individual in that he creates his own ideas, he creates his own norms, he chooses his own path, which might align with the paths of society, but he doesn't just go along with society. And you see this all the time in, in so many uh, myths and stories. It's about a guy fighting against the institution. Um, that's actually a, a type of story in, in screenwriting known as the institutionalized story. If you've if you happen to be a writer, you may have heard of the book Save the Cat. Um, they talk about different types of stories. This is one of the 10 types of stories where hero fights against the norms of society. Uh, the book The Giver is an, is, uh, is an example of that. Um, I mean, there's, there's, there's plenty where it's one against the, the society. Um, and it is part of the, the male hero's journey. Um, I would say uh, people who get stuck in the adolescent phase of rebellion, I would say anarchists or people who are like forever rebellious about everything governmental, they're stuck in half of it. They're creating their own serenity and fighting against the, the, the stagnant norms of the culture, but they don't actually create a new direction very often the time. They just end up complaining. Um, so, uh, yeah. And I'm going to end with um, this idea that I kind of drew from um, drew from reading the book. Neumann doesn't actually make this argument explicitly. But, you know, last episode I was talking about how I realized that the development of patriarchy and the separation of nature, at least, you know, if you go along Neumann's um, modes of thinking, it's, uh, it was kind of inevitable as like the human consciousness became more logical and became more masculine. It was inevitable that society would become a patriarchy and that we would separate from nature and certain elements of femininity would be oppressed. It's kind of just like how, how the brain is developed towards logic and, and away from emotions. Um, but then I got the idea that when integrated, when, uh, individual consciousness or collective consciousness is not afraid of the feminine and not afraid of the masculine aspects of the psyche. It's not afraid of oxytocin-driven impulses, not afraid of testosterone-driven impulses, but actually has them integrated. This masculine aspect of the psyche creates culture, because culture comes from the logos, creates culture not to overcome or oppress the pathos or feminine nature, but to delight the feminine side of the psyche. And you can see this in healthy masculine-feminine relationships the man uses his foresight and thinking to create experiences that make the woman in this case feel happy and secure and uh, safe in her feminine. And this, uh, this is uh, my final point. Uh, bring us back to my, my small healing moment with Lieutenant Colonel Grossman, who in many ways represents a secondary father uh, figure in, in my psyche in the sense that he's a veteran and he writes well and he's a badass dude who knows how to kill and take no shit. Um, uh, well, I just totally lost my train of thought. Sorry about that. It's funny. I, in many ways, I feel more comfortable uh, doing these podcasts totally improvised live because I feel like when there's a, a live stream, I can't like second guess or bullshit, but sometimes I just lose my train of thought. Anyway, Oh, no, he was talking about the protector archetype and how uh, Lieutenant Girl Crossman was talking about the protector archetype. And this is like a missing element of masculinity in, um, in most men because of the fact that we don't, most of us don't go to war. Most of us don't have to fight predators or build our own homes. But this, this ability to provide and protect the feminine or children or the softer parts of an individual or society is a function of testosterone. It's the reason why men have violent impulses. Um, and uh, he, he was speaking about how uh, the warrior, the person who actually is willing to do battle or protect the tribe or protect the children from the bad wolves out in the world, um, the warrior stays on edge to give everyone else the luxury of fully relaxing. And um, he goes actually into the science of what's called parasympathetic backlash of when you deal with stress there's a natural uh, switch for your body to heal itself. And many men end up sleeping a lot and having really great sex because the stress flips everything. It's like battling the elements and uh, you know, having that surge of testosterone needs to balance itself and becoming very receptive and super uh, and have a huge um, access to pleasure. I'm going to end with this quote by Eric Neumann um, because I found it motivational and also ties together all our themes today. Norman wrote, the growth of individuality and its development are mankind's answer to the perils of the soul that threaten us from within and to the perils of the world that threaten us from without. Magic and religion, 
art, science, and techniques are man's creative efforts to cope with the threat of the, the two fronts. At the center of all these endeavors stands the creative individual as the hero, who in the name of the collective, even when he is a lonely figure standing out against it, molds it into shape by molding himself. Eric Neumann. And of course, this means that the hero is the individual who is willing to give no fucks, take no shit, and introduce a new and uh, pro introduce progress to society, let go of stagnant norms that may maybe were useful at one point in societal history, but are no longer. And even when everyone else is giving him shit, calling him crazy, uh, he's willing to, to mold himself to be the thing that he feels is true to his own unconscious, to his own uh, elements of self. And in that way, he ends up helping society. And you can think of the quote often used in, uh, in, in Apple commercials uh, for iPhones, um, the ones who are crazy enough to change the world, or what is it? The ones, are enough, uh, the ones who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who can. Anyway, uh, last idea in these minutes we have left. Um, I was actually thinking about making an episode before this episode on the life triumphant, which is a concept by Walter Russell who's uh, written about in the book, The Man Who Tapped the Secrets of the Universe. A little shout out to Maris, uh, my boy who uh, had been on his show. Check out his YouTube channel. He, he recommended the book to me. Um, and it's about Walter Russell, who is this guy who is extremely prolific. He was a famous inventor, famous sculptor, painter. He's done the, the iconic busts of many celebrities from the early 1900s, Thomas Edison, all the presidents, the Roosevelts. He was like, he was like a guy who like, who fit many lifetimes into one. He was like, he, 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 he was a, I think he achieved uh, high success in music and everything, like across the board. He did more in one lifetime uh, than like many men all combined would have done. And he had certain principles uh, that, and he had this concept of life triumphant, which various, I mean, I was going to make a whole episode on this, but I think I could summarize it in a few minutes. So I'm just going to leave it here because it relates to our theme. A life triumphant is a life where you bring more out in creative expression than you take in value from the world. And uh, it's kind of a beautiful idea. It's very simple, but if you are, especially now in the pandemic, if you are at home consuming, 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 that's great. You should be consuming. Read the great books, listen to the great things that inspire you. But it's so critical, especially in accessing your own individuality and expression, to be bringing forth things into the world. Does it mean you have to have your own uh, blog or write your own book? No, not necessarily, but maybe, maybe that's your form of expression. Maybe it's bringing ideas. Maybe it's being an incredible father who brings incredible ideas to your children or to your woman or to your company. Like you're bringing forth more in creative expression in the, in the sense that you're digging into the unconscious and bringing something new, uh, bringing about a better future in Norman's world, uh, Norman's words, rather than just uh, going along and being a consumer who consumes the ideas and decisiveness and leadership of other people. And, um, uh, Walter Russell listed five uh, five principles in creating a life triumphant. I think they're all kind of like they're kind of trite. It's humility, reverence, inspiration, deep purpose, and joy. Not that those aren't real, but that's basically the idea behind a lot of the law of attraction stuff. On which uh, Walter Russell uh, law of attraction stuff is largely based on Walter Russell's ideas, along with Napoleon Hill and whatnot. But within within the text in the in the book, he he did share some things which I think are the more important principles. Uh, to recognize one being focus, focusing your attention on a specific thing, not scattering it. It's really hard in an electronic age to not scatter your attention, all the, all the shiny balls. But if you focus your attention on one thing, it will create the rails for more and more quality. You might think you're a shitty writer, but you like to write. Well, if you focus on a, a written piece and you give it a lot of time and energy, not just like you look at it while watching a Facebook video or you, I mean, you really give it your, your, your all and you're not even like just focus in the moment, but you, you, you're so, your attention is so on this creative work that you daydream about, it. you think about it while you're taking a shit, you take think about it on the shower, something amazing will happen. If, if only impressive to yourself, something amazing will happen. And that in itself is, part of being a hero and a creative individual. The second principle that Walter Russell shared was listening to your own rhythms. This is one of his uh, answers to why he was able to do so many things in a day. He was able to paint crazy things, write music, invent things, socialize with presidents. Um, he said that it was listening to his own rhythms of like, 
this is kind of a Bruce Lee idea that he shares in the Tao of Yukundo. Eat when you're hungry, sleep when you're tired. You know, don't force yourself into things. But in the moment that you're like, I should be writing right now, or I should be doing this right now, or I should lift the weight right now, you do it in that moment. And uh, funnily enough, it was um, this idea was actually something that was uh, celebrated and like almost canonized when I was in the matriarchal sex cult. Like everything was like, follow your feelings, like with precision, moment to moment. And it, it's uh, it's funny, you know, because like going back to what I was saying in the beginning, you know, I was going to join the Marines partly because of, you know, feelings of insecurity and my masculinity, partly wanting to see the world and have an adventure. I actually think I, I accessed those dormant parts of my masculinity in the matriarchal environment. And I share about that in the, in the podcast episode on a, when I was in a matriarchal sex cult. So if you haven't caught that, you can check that out. But it was actually being in a feminine, feminine environment that I got an opportunity to express my masculinity and creativity and, uh, realized what kind of man I actually was. Um, and, um, oh, and the third one is get more sleep. Actually, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman that he went, he had a whole thing about how critical sleep is. Most people don't realize how critical sleep is. Um, so I've actually been making a point to, uh, get to bed early because yeah, I mean, with this time, if you're quarantined, you could stay up all night watching Netflix or you can ensure you get seven to nine hours of sleep because it will make your ability to think better. It'll actually, and we talk about this in the in episode with Lieutenant Colonel Grossman. Um, it actually changes your ability to experience courage. Like when you're well rested, you have more access to courage and ballsiness as opposed to when you're fatigued. Every, the whole world is a little more scary. Um, I want to share one random, like random last story uh, before we close because I actually forgot to mention this in the Mother Complex episode, but it relates to this too. Like with toughness and like I shared about part of my father wounding was seeing that my dad wasn't tough or he was afraid of conflict and that was passed down to me. I always felt like smaller than other people. I mean, I'm, I'm a physically smaller person, but I was also felt like just like I was an easy target for bullies and stuff. And there was something in um, when I was in the cult, uh, I mean, prior to the cult, I was constantly because of that, because of my father wound and trying to seek out toughness and secondary fathers, I was constantly trying to do hyper masculine things, join the Marines. I became a boxer. I was a wrestler. I was really into combat sports and they're all great. They're all very beneficial. I got to interact with really badass father figure type people who helped me become a little, a little tougher. But the thing that, at, but I, but funny enough, even when I was a boxer wrestler and like, you know, I was pretty jacked and I, I kind of had a chip on my shoulder. I was still pretty afraid of people. Like I, the few times I had uh, confrontations with like drunk guys at parties and stuff, like I felt a, a level of fear that I still wasn't like man enough, even though I, I knew how to fight more than the average person. When I was in the, in the sex cult, I was very much getting in, in touch with my feminine side. And there was an experience where, um, these, these two like really brolic uh, movers were moving um, like furniture in for one of one of the cult members who moved into the house. And like, you know, these were like really tough the type of the type of guys that I might have like looked up to and been afraid of when I was younger, like really badass, uncouth, big, big dudes. And um, one of the guys was an asshole. I was holding the door open for him and he's like, move the fuck out of my way. Or he said something like that. And um instead of like cowering or backing down, I, you know, I was practicing emotional vulnerability for the first time. So I was like, I'm going to confront him and I'd be like, Hey, listen, man, like I was helping you out. You didn't have to, you didn't have to be a jerk. You know, I didn't say I, you hurt my feelings, but that was basically what I was trying to share. Cause that was the, the headspace I was in. And obviously this, this badass uh, guy, this, I mean, this tough looking guy's bully type, uh, didn't take that well. He got all up in my face. He's he, like, he, I think he like, he just, he got up all in my face. Like he was going to like fuck me up. And this guy maybe had 150 pounds on me hundred pounds on me. He's big. And, um, I remember for the first time in my life, you know, and it's actually at this point, I had not been weightlifting. I was probably like the physically small, the smallest I'd ever been. I think I lost like 10 pounds eating healthy and, uh, not lifting weights and doing tons of yoga when I was in the cults. I was like the smallest physically I've ever been. Like he, he really could have crushed me, but there was something about accessing my own anima, accessing my feelings where when I looked at him in the eye, instead of like, just like sizing us or sizing up our muscles, I looked at him in the eye and I was like, I can see your fear right now. Like I could see that this, this big dude who's older than me, bigger than me, you know, flexing, uh, threatening, he's posturing, he's threatening, like he's going to beat me up and he probably could. I could see the fear in his eye and something about that level of empathy. Like he could see that I could see the fear in his eye. And I knew that he wasn't going to throw a punch at me. Like I knew that he was, uh, he was going to back down and the dude actually backed down. And, uh, 
I don't know. There's probably some lessons you could draw from that, but I thought it was interesting because there's something about um, the more the more someone postures, the more you can kind of see that he's insecure about his masculinity. Whereas the Bruce Lee type, the mild mannered, actual badass, is so connected to groundedness and feelings and empathy, and, and and perhaps you need to know how to fuck people up too. Like the guy, if the guy did swing on me, I don't know that I would have lasted uh, too long in the fight unless I like you know tried to ankle pick his ankle pick him or something. Uh, that's the go-to with a, uh, with a big ass dude, kick him in the nuts or ankle pick him. Anyway, we're going to end there. Go with individuality, go be a hero. And if you're, if you, if you've been online right now, I mean, uh, most people don't watch the live stream. If you've, uh, if you're watching the video of this, especially, and you've been on your screen for a while, I know this is going to be terrible for my social media analytics, but uh, I really encourage you to get off your screen and do something, do a high attention exercise because I'm telling you, it's a little more, it's a little challenging at first. It's like uh, talking with my buddy Jordan uh, Lucalia from Arzan Murata about classical music. Like classical music isn't pleasurable at first. You kind of have to suffer through it. But when it gets to that octave change later, like you feel so much reward. And that's what high attention exercises are like, whether you're reading a dense book or writing by hand or doing something where like there's not pop-ups that can give you dopamine. Like you actually have to focus to get the reward. That's where you get, like that's where you really mine for the metal within your body. Metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, like the, the virtues. Anyway, I could rant a little longer, but I have things to do as well. So thanks for listening. And um, as always, the Archetype Challenge is available at ruando.com slash archetype. Uh, it's a 21-day challenge full of meditations and exercises to increase your attention span, help you heal father wounding, mother wounding, and access the embodied, authentic expression of your testosterone-driven impulses, which we call the mask and archetype. So enjoy your life. I hope you're all staying safe and uh, cowabunga.